Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. This is a Bible that I can see. That's good. I like that. Uh, Matthew chapter 8 comes after the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of teaching, chapters 5 to 7. And now we read of part of the ministry of Jesus Christ, beginning with verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west. And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus' first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is finished. And now Matthew recounts various miracles and works of Jesus, showing and demonstrating that Jesus' words were not in vain. There is a temptation to see Jesus as just a teacher of good morals. I heard one time, not anywhere near here, so... Nobody worry, uh, but in another place, in fact, in another country, I heard someone promoting Bible distribution and that the people should give to Bible distribution because it improved people's morals and living conditions. Now, I don't doubt that when someone converts to Jesus Christ and follows God's will in the scriptures that their morals improve and that their living conditions can improve. I don't doubt that. But that's not the gospel. And Jesus' words may not be divorced from his person and his work in reconciling us with God. And so we have a remarkable story before us here, remarkable in almost all its aspects. First of all, we have a centurion. We all know who centurions were. They were Romans, members of the invading empire, hated by the Jews, of course, as any people would hate an invading, oppressive empire. But the centurions were not only Romans, they were the ones in charge of maintaining Rome in the power. And so you can imagine, in general, centurions were the ones who crucified Jesus. They beat him. They were the ones 
involved in suppressing rebellions among the Jews. And so we have here a centurion. However, it appears that God had been working in the life of this centurion. He was stationed in northern Palestine. And Luke tells us, and the parallel passage in Luke is very important for the understanding of this passage. We, we could have read it also. But Luke tells us that the Jews tell Jesus he'd built a synagogue for the Jews. That's like building a church. So this centurion had put out his own money, quite a bit, to build a synagogue for the Jews. It appears that he had become interested in salvation, the salvation of his soul, in the scriptures, the Old Testament. He had begun to identify with God's people. In fact, it appears, harmonizing the two accounts, that the centurion in person did not go to Jesus, but rather sent to Jesus. Matthew summarizes, he says the centurion came, but in Luke it says that the Jews went on his behalf, and in Luke uh, we read that the Jews say to Jesus, help him because he is worthy. He's worthy for you to help him. Here are Jews coming to Jesus on behalf of a Roman centurion so committed to this fellow that they say, he's worthy for you to help him. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? Now, I want you to remember that little detail. The Jews say, he's worthy for you to help him. And so I find tremendous irony in this passage, Jews coming to Jesus to take this uncircumcised Roman soldier and so that Jesus will help him. Now let's get to the heart of the story. The heart of this story is how the centurion evidences true faith. He shows us what the character of true faith is. And this is what Jesus uh, brings out and later talks about his mission. The centurion understands and believes in the authority of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, don't come, just say the word. I understand authority. I'm a man over others. And I say to others, do this, and they do it. If we ask ourselves, why do we have so many details in this story? Why did Matthew not just say, there was a centurion in Capernaum and Jesus healed his servant? He could have said that then we would have known that a miracle took place. But we have a lot of details. In fact, we have parallel accounts, each with more details. Why do we have so many details? Well, it's because we have before us the crucial elements of Jesus' mission and the character of true faith. First of all, the centurion affirms the authority of Jesus. That's important. The authority of Christ's word has always been under attack from the world, but also from within the church. We're not going to talk about the liberals and those who are far out. There's always been a subjectivism within God's people that is often very strong. And this subjectivism submits everything to me. If I don't approve something, then I'm free to act as I please. We make ourselves the final authority over our lives. You know, our weakest members in Costa Rica are the ones who reserve the right to judge everything by their own standards. 
And that's how they act. And our strongest members and the most diligent are those who affirm Christ's authority and those who embrace Christ's authority. You see, true faith rests on an absolute confidence in Jesus Christ's authority. And Christ's mission through us depends on us accepting 100% Jesus Christ's authority. If we won't recognize Christ's authority when he says, go and disciple the nations, we won't fulfill our mission. Now, secondly, the, under, the centurion not only understands authority, and he recognizes Christ's authority, but he also understands his own unworthiness. Remember, the Jews had said, Jesus, help him because he is worthy. But the centurion insists, in fact, Jesus doesn't ever go to his place. The centurion says, please don't come to my house. I am not worthy to receive you. This is remarkable because he was highly recommended by the Jews. It's as if, you know, you were going to see an important person and you came with really good letters of recommendation. I think any one of us would say, well, I'm going to go make the request and, and uh, in my folder here I have letters of recommendation. Highly recommended. This centurion came with the highest recommendation of the Jewish leaders in Capernaum. He, if we look at this on a human level, he could have said, Jesus, um, don't just take my word for it, but, but take these brothers, the Jews, take their word for it too and come and heal my servant. We would have totally understood if he'd said that. But in spite of the Jews saying, go to his house, he's worthy for you to help him, the centurion begs Jesus not to come. He says, I'm not worthy. I understand that you can just speak the word. I understand your authority. And I understand a second thing. I understand that I am not unworthy. Dear friend in Christ, what do we believe about ourselves? And what do we tell others that they should think about themselves? That wonderful catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, <laughs> begins saying, what is our only comfort in life and in death? To know our Savior Jesus Christ. And the second question says, what must I know to live and die in this comfort? And it says, what we must know to live and die in the comfort God can give us is that we must know how great is our sin and misery. How great is our sin and misery. Our mission in this world is not Christ's mission if we do not help people see their sin and misery, their unworthiness apart from Christ. And that starts with recognizing, as we did at the beginning of the service, our own violations of God's law, our own personal unworthiness, and having gone to Christ ourselves, 
help others see their unworthiness and their need of Jesus. And so thirdly, the centurion understands that life and death are under Jesus' power. He says, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And our mission, people of God, our mission depends on being able to take people to Jesus Christ with confidence. Peter, after Pentecost, stands up and he says before the Jews who had taken him in in chapter 4, there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by what we might be saved. The centurion understands that life and death are in the hands of Jesus Christ. And we too understand that and can take people with confidence to Jesus Christ in whose hands is the power over life and death. And fourthly, the centurion understands that Christ's word alone has sufficient power to heal. Now, we cannot know the exact content of the centurion's faith. Maybe he'd heard Jesus speak. Jesus had been preaching publicly. So maybe he'd heard Jesus speak and he'd come to conclusions. We can't know the exact content of the centurion's faith, how much he understood about Jesus as, as God's son, but he believed God. And he understood that Jesus was sent by God. And he understood that Jesus had God's power to heal. And what a tremendous surprise to hear this confession of faith by the centurion. Just say the word. I believe in the power of your word. Jesus marvels at his faith. Jesus marveled. That's what we read. Jesus marveled at his faith. John Calvin says Jesus marveled at his faith for two reasons. He lifts up the centurion's faith as an example for two reasons. First of all, because with relatively little understanding, his faith gave great fruit. His testimony was immediate. His confidence was abundant. And he affirmed publicly this confidence in Jesus Christ. Every person in this room, every child, the smallest, knows more about Jesus than did this centurion. Because the centurion didn't even know about the cross and the resurrection. It hadn't happened yet. Every one of us knows much more about Jesus than did the centurion. The centurion gave fruit to his faith, immediate testimony, and abundant confidence and affirm publicly. Secondly, Calvin says, while the Jews sought signs constantly, you remember, right to the end of Jesus' ministry, the Jews were asking for signs. The centurion refuses for any physical sign. He doesn't say, come and lay hands and, uh, and, and do something. He says, just speak the word. This is incredible. For the centurion, the word of Christ was completely sufficient. Now, I'd like to ask us all this morning, how would our own life change if our faith was more like that of the centurion? 
And how would the mission of our churches change if our life was more like, and our faith was more like the centurions? If we really trusted the power of Christ's word to forgive. Jesus, on occasions, forgave people with just his word. The paralytic let down, the prostitute who washed his feet, he just forgave with his word. Those around him scorned him. The Jews and Simon the Pharisee, they scorned him. Jesus knew what was in their heart. Then he proved he could forgive by raising the paralytic right off his bed. But Jesus' word was sufficient to forgive. I, I think that, that many Christians still uh, are impeded in free service to the Lord because of memories and burdens of guilt that we, that we have over past things in our life and we, we know that we're unworthy, but those feelings of unworthiness impede us from serving the Lord. What if we believed the power of Jesus Christ's word to forgive? When he says, come unto me, those of you who are burdened and labored, and I will give you rest. There's also the flip side of legalism in the church. Legalism in the church raises up secondary or tertiary or whatever barriers to come to Jesus Christ. And so we... We don't accept someone who says they've trusted Christ if they don't meet other barriers, legalistic barriers. So, people of God, it's important that as the centurion trusted completely, and Jesus lauds him for this, to the, the centurion trusted the word of Jesus Christ to fulfill whatever Jesus said when we accept the Lord and we accept Christ's word of forgiveness that is crucial for our own lives and for our church's mission. What if we really trusted the power of Jesus Christ's word to transform? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, all is made new. We know that that doesn't happen overnight, always. It can. And I thank the Lord for Christian counselors and those who uh, uh, open themselves to helping others. But sometimes I think we shirk our duties as Christians and as congregations and churches. And we relegate God's power to transform sinners to psychological and humanistic means. Christ's word is powerful to transform. We should believe that. What if we believed Jesus Christ's promise 
to comfort. There's a reason we have a beautiful psalm at the beginning of Israel's history, almost, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, especially with everything that's been happening with the virus and with so many things and disturbances and life being turned upside down. Costa Rica has experienced a terrible uh, lockdown, uh, radical measures in the country. The, the news that one doesn't know what to believe. You hear so many different things. The Christian needs comfort at all times. Jesus ended his ministry on this, worth saying, on this earth saying, and I will be with you to the end of the age. And when we don't experience God's comfort and peace, we know that we are less effective at every level, personal, family, work, and church. What if we really believe Jesus Christ's promise and power to comfort our souls? Would, we, would it make a difference in our everyday lives? How about the effectiveness of Christ's word to counsel, to counsel and to warn against the consequences of sin? You know, Paul in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he warns against a list of sins. He says, don't even... Don't even mention these things among you because God's judgment is coming upon these things. And we need to take heed to ourselves and also warn others because Christ's powerful word will execute what he says the consequences of sin are. And the church must stand firm on the power of Christ's word to fulfill his warnings. Now, Jesus had in mind the consequence, the consequences for missions, and the following verses are evidence, what Jesus says when he marvels at the centurion's faith, but then he continues. You see, all that will matter is what Jesus teaches us. All that will matter is faith in the authority and power of Christ's word. Just as an uncircumcised centurion could receive Christ's blessing, so would many others who were presently outside the church. Look at verses 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness and there will be weeping. Faith in Christ is the requisite, the only requisite to enter the kingdom. And with this one verse, Jesus smashes all prejudices, of course, all human prejudices based on race, social status, ethnicity, and let this be a warning to the church today. The only stumbling block is the cross of Christ. We may not place any other barriers. 
The Jews unwittingly brought an uncircumcised Gentile to Jesus, but Jesus drives home the lesson, you did well. Now, here we almost tremble at verse 12 because Jesus gives a severe warning to the subjects of the kingdom. He says they will be thrown out. They will be thrown out. Why? Were they not born into Christian homes? Were they not born into the covenant? Well, Jesus says their lack of faith will disqualify them. Jesus gives one of his somewhat frequent descriptions of hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why will there be weeping? I did a study, I did a search, and as far as what I could find in the New Testament, all the weeping, all the weeping will be done by covenant members who went to hell. Why? Well, I imagine that in hell there will be many reasons to weep. But taking the truth that these were covenant members raised in the people of God, I'm sure that part of the weeping will be eternal regret. Because they knew the truth. They were presented with Jesus Christ. And they rejected it. Dear friend, Jesus is not playing at religion. And as he gives testimony to the sincere faith of this Gentile, his tone turns very serious and very urgent. Eternal destinies are at stake, and everything has to do with how we receive Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so how does Jesus see his mission in this world? How does Jesus see his mission through the church, through you and me? First of all, it is a mission which brings us to recognize our own personal unworthiness. In Costa Rica, a humanistic church that likes to give, you know, good news and make people feel happy, hoping they'll give bigger offerings that way, call us, the Reformed people, radical, because we talk about sin, actually, and we actually mention hell. I was talking with a, to a pastor's conference some time back, and I asked the men directly, when is the last time you talked about condemnation, the, the judgment of God at the end of this world, and the reality of hell? Nobody said anything. And on the way home, the pastor, who was a very good man, a very good pastor, he reached over and he, he touched my leg. He said, you know what? I can't remember the last time I mentioned hell. That was important for you to tell us. People of God, Jesus' mission cannot go forward 
if the church today, and if we are not clear about our own personal unworthiness, we are violators of God's holy law, and we forever will be. Do you know that even in heaven we will deserve hell on our own basis? And it will only because, be because of the mercy of Jesus Christ who imputes, the reformers called it justitia aliena, an alien righteousness to our account, an alien righteousness, not our own, that we will be able to see the face of our Savior in heaven. First of all, this centurion, a Gentile, uncircumcised Roman, said the truth. I'm unworthy for you to even come to my house. And we need to start there. In humility, live our lives of, out of humility ourselves, but take a message also to those outside. They are unworthy. We are all unworthy. And so secondly, Christ's mission necessitates that we recognize and confess Jesus Christ, the power and the authority of his word. And Jesus says, he who comes to me will in no wise be cast out. That is the, the Jesus that we preach. And that is the Jesus we believe. And his word of authority and power is what we ourselves rest on and what we take others to. And finally, that Christ's mission is one which calls us to recognize the power. The authority is number two, and the power of Christ's word is number three. And so just two things in closing. A question. Would Jesus marvel at your faith today? That sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> we, don't, we don't even like to say that. It almost sounds a bit blasphemous. But the Bible says Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. I think that what Jesus would like to see from all of us is what Calvin noted of the centurion's faith. An immediate, simple, spontaneous, public manifestation, fruit of our faith, always. And so, let's just say today, how about if we make it a goal that Jesus marvel at our faith? And secondly, our mission must have the urgency and the clarity that Jesus speaks of. We must trust and act on the authority and the power of Christ's word that is the foundation for our own life and it is the foundation for our church's missions. People of God, we can take anyone 
with confidence to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for that centurion who taught everyone around that day what true faith in Jesus looks like. Thank you for the warning that we have heard. It's necessary, Lord. It's a reminder once again, and we need to hear that also. Thank you, dear Jesus, for your powerful and authoritative word that fulfills whatever you say. Thank you for the pardon and forgiveness that your word imparts. Thank you for the transformation of lives that your powerful word imparts. And thank you, Lord, that we can go to others who today yet have not confessed you, and we can bring them to Jesus Christ, an authoritative and a powerful Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.